a look at law, government, and civics from a biblical perspective. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you for sharing the show, liking the show, um, sending it to friends and family. I always uh, appreciate the support that you guys give me. And I hope and pray that this show will be a blessing to you this morning. Uh, For some administrative items, of course, if you have any questions that you wish to submit for the podcast, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Governed by God or GBG Podcast. And be sure to send in any questions that you have that you would like me to tackle All right, to begin our show today, our show is essentially called Tattletales, Twitter, and Tyrants. And so I want to begin by looking at our law of the day. So if you have your Bibles and you wish to turn with me, please do so. I'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. Here is the law of the day. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So, fairly short law, but it has to do with not uh, going around as a slander, basically telling falsehoods about other people. Uh, It could be uh, rumors. It could be um, truths that are are secret. Uh, There are some parallel passages uh, here in Proverbs, so there's some some wisdom passages. Proverbs 20, verse 19 speaks to whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. And then if you turn to Proverbs chapter 11, you also get 11, 13. Uh, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. So, now, I looked up the Hebrew word for the uh, slanderer. Uh, I hope I am pronouncing it correctly. Uh, rakil. Uh, rakil refers to a scandal monger or a tale bearer. Um, it could involve revealing secrets that were true, or it could involve spreading a false report or just embellishing on a particular story. But in either case, the purpose is to destroy uh, relationships, to to destroy your neighbor, uh, cause harm uh, to a person's character and their standing within the community. Okay, so it's certainly not not a positive thing in any way. Uh, So now we look at at that uh, context of of ancient Israel, uh, certainly going around telling people bad things about your, your neighbor or the farmer next door. Uh, to try to discredit that person uh, in the marketplace or in the congregation, uh, ultimately either because of some vengeance that you have against them, or you want to, uh, you're competing with them and you want to ruin their business or anything like that. Now, how would that apply, let's say today, as Christians, as we try to draw these these laws out and apply them to a new covenant context? Well. Within the church, we do have explicit examples of Paul talking about uh, our speech, especially towards one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 is uh, a pretty good example. He says this, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander 
be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And Colossians uh, 3, 8 says uh, very similar things there. So as Christians, such talk, slandering, is not to be part of our lives, but but rather thanksgiving and um, blessing. We want to build up, not tear down, particularly within our covenant community amongst Christians, fellow Christians, fellow believers. Uh, there is good application for this in every area of life, not just within the church. For instance, within the home, slandering is destructive wherever it takes place and should and, and will will tear away at the unity and cohesion of any organization or group. So, for example, that's why I mentioned tattletaling at the beginning of this episode because that is a form of slandering where um, a person, a child, reveals the secrets of another or embellishes a little bit for the purpose of getting the other uh, sibling in trouble. So, uh, calling for help is not tattletaling, uh, trying to get if, if your goal is to, is to, you know, for safety reasons, you know, one of the other kids is doing something very dangerous and, and a sibling comes over and, and warns the parents, uh, that's not tattletaling because the goal is to protect life, to protect relationship, uh, to bring uh, healing and to love your neighbor rather than to destroy them. And you can usually tell what the motive is for a child uh, when they're going about telling stories or trying to uh, expose the deeds of a fellow child. Um, so children slandering each other, uh, tattletaling would be an example, or even parents slandering each other in front of their children. And this is more prominent, obviously, amongst divorced parents, where one parent might say something. Uh, again, it could be a truth that's that's secret and supposed to be you know, between the parents, or it could be an embellishment, or it could be, uh, you know, a, bl- a plain out lie, but whatever the case may be, uh, the one parent is trying to discredit the other parent in front of the children. So, you know, if you, I, you can just imagine two divorced uh, parents, and, and they're trying to kind of get at each other, and they do so through slandering to the children. Uh, within the workplace, slander can destroy um, a fellow co-worker's career, you could get revenge on maybe a boss or a subordinate or someone who's wronged you. Um, you can you can basically re- remove or end someone's chances for advancement uh, in their career. A false report or a false scandal uh, can easily do that. Um, again, even if it's false, the damage, the damage is done to the credit of the person's character. So that's uh, a pretty serious issue. And then within the greater society, we have uh, slander that can take place in politics. We see that certainly certainly today where uh, it's a lot of mudslinging and uh, everyone is just uh, speaking badly about other, other people. It could be private. It could be even truth. Uh, it could be truth, but the purpose, of course, is to destroy, not to build up. And businesses can do it too, you know, whether they're speaking badly about competitors uh, there. So it can happen everywhere. Our sins of our tongue can happen in every area of life. Now, how about punishment? What does the Bible say about that? Well, the scripture does not explicitly call for punishment of destructive speech 
or all destructive speech, I should say, but there is some speech that leads to restitution or requires uh, something to be done. We see this in a comparable law in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. It has to do with false witnesses. Uh, It says this, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the false report or the false witness that's trying to cause real harm, okay, uh, should result in punishment for the the false witness, uh, the false testifier. So essentially, if you falsely accuse someone of theft or violence or, or, or damaging your property and you take them to court for the purpose of trying to get something from them, if it's proven that you are a false witness, you should get the punishment. You should, you, you should pay that person for the damages that you caused, that you were hoping to cause to them should now come back upon you. So there is a sense in which at some point our slander, our false testimony, uh, if, it, if it's trying to cause real tangible damage to a person, um, it should, the, the person that's causing the slander should get punished for it. And, and the punishment must fit the crime. Um, again, that's where the whole concept of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's really not a concept of of personal vendetta or vengeance. It has to do with punishment fitting the crime. You should not go above and beyond to cause uh, destruction uh, back at the person. And so the need for uh, dealing with slander is important in our very modern, rapid online culture. And that leads me to my discussion of Twitter today. Many of you know over the past several weeks that uh, there was a recent attempt or plan to subpoena for Congress to subpoena Twitter and Facebook CEOs and to bring them before Congress and explain what is going on with regards to social media. Now, the context is that a few weeks ago, the New York Post wrote a story connecting Hunter Biden, uh, his corruption with uh, Vice President Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden. So it has to do with the uh, alleged scandal there between Hunter and his father, Joe. Now, Facebook attempted to reduce the spread of the article while Twitter actually blocked people from posting links to the article. Um, and the Senate Judiciary Committee was going to vote to possibly subpoena the CEOs of Twitter and Facebook. And they recently decided to hold off on that. I'm not entirely sure the reasoning for it, maybe waiting after the election, but it's postponed as of now. 
And all of this brings up the issue of censorship and slander. So Facebook and Twitter um, were offering the explanation that they're trying to fight against Russian hacking and collusion, basically propaganda, and that's why they wanted to shut down these articles. Uh, and it's, it's also possible that they wanted to avoid seeing that their preferred candidate uh, be attacked or exposed publicly. So you have you have both issues there. I mean, maybe yes, they're trying to protect truth and kind of stop the spread of lies and rumors, but also uh, it's it's feasible that they favor former Vice President Joe Biden and they want to therefore protect his reputation, even if it means hiding uh, the truth. So the question that we're dealing with is, should Facebook and Twitter be held accountable for suppressing speech? And it really comes down to whether or not they are a platform or a publisher. Uh, I did a little bit of reading on this, and it looks like based on the um, Communications Decency Act of 1996. So uh, if you go to U.S. Code Title 47, Chapter 5, there's a section there that talks about how service providers or how content providers can be held accountable or not accountable. So uh, it says uh, in that act, quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. In other words, the online the online platforms, Facebook and Twitter, that host, they host speech or they they republish speech. They're protected against laws that might be used to hold them responsible for what others say and do. So you they're just a platform. You can say whatever pretty much whatever you want and Facebook, Twitter are not accountable for the content that you put on there. I mean, you could you could just make up stuff about about people and those individuals they can sue you, okay, for defamation or slander, libel, whatever the case may be, but they can't sue Facebook because it's not Facebook's responsibility. It's not their job to investigate every single post and to know for sure whether it's truth or not. Um, whether it's just a, a, a you know your own private post where you're ranting about a you know a coworker, or whether it's a massive political um, expose on on some candidate. So now there's some things we need to keep in mind when we're looking at this problem, right? The concept of a platform um, is, I think, very useful and very feasible. So for example, you could use the internet to engage in all kinds of illegal activity. Uh, it could be illegal drug sales or gun smuggling or whatever the case may be. And let's say you have Verizon Internet. So even though they probably could get um, your website history, your browsing history, if there were some kind of investigation, they're not actively tracking and preventing you from going to certain websites every single day. So if you start doing things online that are inappropriate, Verizon's not going to just cut your internet at that moment. They're not policing uh, that, in that in that moment. The same thing for using your phone. You could call in a bomb threat. You could set up, again, you could set up a, a drug operation. You could do all kinds of illegal 
and immoral things on your phone in your conversations. But but T-Mobile or AT&T or Sprint, they're not currently listening in on your conversation uh, to decide whether to cut you off from the conversation that you're having there. Another example is electricity. You could use electricity in your house to do any number of things. You could be cooking up crystal meth in your basement and Pico or, or PPL Electric, they don't know what you're using your electricity for. So it would be it would be like them basically monitoring your electricity use and if they see you using it for a inappropriate appliance or something, they cut off your electricity. And then the last example is roads. You could you could use the roads to drive to your neighbor's house to assault him or to break into a person's house and to steal something. You could use the roads for any number of illegal activity, but the toll booths don't know what you're doing when you're driving. And they don't ask you what you're doing when you go and pay your toll on you know whatever, whatever road you're on. So uh, all those things are examples of common use platforms that are available for the wicked and the righteous alike. And uh, those platforms don't police uh, their uh, institution regularly. Now, publishers are different. Publishers control the speech that's allowed to be published, which makes sense, right? So any, any book publisher doesn't have to publish your book. They're not required to. So they, they select what they want to publish, what they feel like putting their name behind. Um, and as of now, Facebook and Twitter seemingly want to enjoy protection as a platform, like roads and electricity and the internet. But they're not really acting like platforms. They're acting like publishers where they selectively uh, ban content that they don't want to see uh, published. Simply not because the content is um, illegal, okay, not because the content is uh, inappropriate images or depictions of, of murder or anything like anything horrible uh, like that or again gun smuggling operations or whatever but just because they don't like something um, and and if they're going to be a platform uh, it's not their job to try to punish slander if that makes sense like we know that slander and libel is bad and it should be avoided at all costs and sometimes it should be punished. But again, if they're going to be a platform um, and not an investigator, not a police organization, it's not their job to determine whether every single post is slander or not. Uh, they can't be held liable for that. Uh, that's, that's, that's the issue that someone else has to deal with again. So the solutions to this problem um, are those platforms too big to be allowed to be private companies anymore? Some people have suggested that they be taken over by the government because the logic is that free speech is not protected for corporations. And that is true. Uh, your First Amendment rights have to do with the government can't suppress your speech. Um, but if you go into someone's home and you start spouting off, things that they don't want to hear, they can make you leave. It's their home. They, they don't have to allow speech, free speech, in their home. So um, in the same way, those are private companies. Facebook and Twitter are private companies. It's their platform. They can choose to 
to allow or prevent whatever speech they want. Just got to treat them as a publisher then. Um, so, you know, some people have suggested if, you, if the government takes them over and nationalizes, so begins to run them, essentially steals them from the owners of Facebook and Twitter, well, then the government has to has to respect your First Amendment rights, and therefore uh, we're good to go, right? Well, the only reason why those companies are so big in the first place is because there are so many regulations and favoritism shown to them uh, that prevent other companies from competing. Just think about MySpace, which existed before Facebook, or or Minds, M-I-N-D-S, is another a free speech platform or parlor. There's other platforms out there that are becoming more popular because they don't restrict speech like Facebook and Twitter do. But the question is, Facebook and Twitter, are they too big? And if they're too big, it's probably because the government's already been getting involved in regulation and favoritism. So there's that issue. And I would say, um, aside from making it easier for competition to compete, so we want other platforms to be out there to to compete with Facebook and Twitter, that'll help hold them accountable. One answer is to enforce anti-libel, anti-slander laws. Um, If Facebook's going to act like a publisher, then treat them like a publisher. Or if they want to act like a platform, treat them like a platform. If Facebook bans you and starts telling everyone that you are a racist misogynist and it ends up getting you fired and blacklisted, maybe there are some damages that you can seek against them for them basically trying to destroy your reputation and in that way they they're acting like a slanderer or tail monger against you so just some things to consider Um, if we're afraid of the bias of facebook and twitter we need to leave those platforms and use other platforms instead so let's not put ourselves then in a position where we know we are vulnerable or at the mercy of others. And that's something that we need to be careful of. If we're on Facebook and we say something and Facebook decides to blacklist us and show us how evil we are, show the world how evil we are, uh, and it ends up getting us fired, we're kicked out of all of these clubs or whatever, uh, friends stop talking to us, basically they destroy our reputation. Well, that's no different than what happened in the past. You know, one person just decides to go to the to the town square and start spreading rumors about you and all of a sudden uh, no one no one's doing business with you okay everyone is shunning you um, well that kind of behavior that slandering that attempt to destroy there's there seems to be a place for punishment uh, to be given to the slanderer and it should be dealt with but we as individuals have to be careful not to put ourselves in a position where uh, we know we're vulnerable. I mean, the same idea applies. Again, it's 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 a private company. Um, I sh- if if I go to someone's house, and I know that they are going to ridicule me uh, for what I believe or what I say, and that when I go in there, I'm just going to get just destroyed uh, verbally by people, and it, I'm just walking into the lines. Then going to that person's house, uh, that person who I know would verbally abuse me if I went there and ridicule me. Well, why would I subject myself to that? Like if I go to their house and then complain that I got treated badly, maybe I shouldn't go to their house. Maybe I shouldn't be on these platforms uh, there. 
and I should start my own platform or be part of another platform. There's no, there's no requirement that we have to be part of Facebook. Um, again, they're only so big because favoritism by the government has, has helped them to become so big, I would say. All right, so enough on, on that. That's a little application, kind of little relevant discussion of the, the Levitical laws of, against slander and how they would apply. Now, now this gets me to my last topic of tyrants and tyranny. And this is, this is tying into the discussion a couple weeks ago uh, when we looked at, well, if a law is wicked, is it really a law? And do we need to obey it? And the question is, um, how do we submit to wicked laws? If a wicked law is not really a law, should we submit to that law? And there's two considerations that I want to bring up. The first is, do Christians have the flexibility or freedom to, to comply with that law? And this uh, ties into what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, let me go to that passage real quick. In Matthew 5, 38, he says, You have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, in that passage, uh, the context of going the extra mile uh, has to do with the fact that Roman soldiers, and I believe Roman citizens, could command any subject, so a non-citizen of Rome, any subject to carry equipment and supplies for them for up to one mile. So that would typically happen in a, in a military situation where the soldiers, the legions are on the march, they need to bring their supplies, or they need to do something, and they command the local townspeople, hey, you need to come with us for, for one mile. And it was very inconvenient for that to happen. Uh, you had to obey. If you didn't, you got yourself in some serious trouble. And it was a sign of subjugation. They could make you go with them for a mile and carry all their gear for them. And then as far as lawsuits for tunics, a tunic was an important piece of clothing. But a cloak, and Jesus even says, let them have your cloak as well, was even more important. A cloak was used for protection from rain and cold and the elements, and it was used for sleeping on the ground as well. So in both of these cases, it's a it's inconvenience or deep personal loss, and Jesus is saying, do not retaliate. Don't, don't try to get back at them for that. And then you have another passage that's very similar. Uh, Matthew 17 is the temple tax. Matthew 17 verses 24 through 27 says this, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, this tax 
was modeled after the half shekel tax in Exodus chapter 30. Um, so when the census was taken, here's what it says in Exodus 30. Each person shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Okay, so the idea there is that the half shekel tax was to support the tabernacle. Now, the reason why is technically at the time of Jesus, it's not technically mandatory because the law applied to the tabernacle when the census was being done. Uh, and there's nothing to suggest that a census was to be taken every year. And I don't want to get into the concept of a, of a census, but there was a census that God commanded. But then there were other times when a census was was condemned, like David took a census when he wasn't supposed to, and it ended up bringing judgment upon Israel. But another thing to keep in mind is Jesus, as the owner of the temple, as God himself, was not required or obligated to pay, but he chose to do so to avoid causing offense. That was the tradition of the time, was they modeled the temple tax after that um, earlier census tax for the tabernacle, uh, and not doing it would have caused offense. And Jesus went ahead and, and had the freedom to comply with that man-made law. So this, I bring up these examples to show there is opportunity for freedom and flexibility. Even if something is immoral or, or against us um, and it's unfair or unjust, uh, there are times where Christians can and should submit to that and let it happen and, and just allow themselves to be, to be inconvenienced or to suffer personal loss or to act in such a way as to not cause offense. But at this, okay, so that's, that's kind of the first consideration. The second consideration is, are Christians obligated to refuse a particular command? And we see examples of this in the book of Daniel, Daniel 3, with the uh, image of gold and Daniel's friends refusing to bow down to the, to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. Um, I, it's, it's pretty clear, like, they don't have the option there. Okay, they don't have the freedom to say, well, I don't want to cause, I don't want to cause offense to Nebuchadnezzar, so I'm just going to go ahead and begin to worship and bow down to this um, statue. So that would be uh, sinning against God, which they're not allowed to do. And then in Daniel chapter 6, with King Darius and Daniel, basically the law saying that all people have to pray to Darius for 30 days and they can't pray to anybody else. And then Daniel goes, goes ahead and prays at his window with his window open three times a day towards Jerusalem uh, there. So uh, is, does Daniel have the freedom to choose? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be, it'll be inconvenient. I'll go ahead and pray to Darius. Uh, no, he, he doesn't have the option to do that. So the key here to keep in mind is that you cannot sin against God. Uh, your flexibility sh does not mean you get to go ahead and, and sin against God. Um, it's not a sin against God to go the extra mile. It's not a sin against God to absorb the insult from others or to allow others to take from you there. And it's not a sin to entertain someone's folly or, or silly tradition uh, or man-made law that you might not agree with, um, but it's not 
commanding you to sin. So another key though is, are you sacrificing yourself or sacrificing others? And this is where it gets a little bit more complicated, I would say, but um, it's very important that if you are in a position of leadership, you have to ask yourself, okay, is it inconveniencing me or is it inconveniencing the people that I represent and protect and take care of, okay, as a leader? And this is where there is application for both uh, persecution and regular crimes. So to give an example, if the government or were to come over to the church and say, Pastor so-and-so or elders, all the elders of Hilltown Baptist Church, you are under arrest for preaching the gospel and, and, and proselytizing. Okay, that's fine. Even though I do have my freedoms and my rights, I believe, and, I, and I'm not sinning, I'm not breaking the law, uh, not a real law, I'm breaking a, I'm breaking a man-made false law, a wicked law, uh, I, would, I would go along and not fight against them. But that is different than uh, them coming up to the congregation or to the church and saying, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to execute all the Christian men and we're going to take the women and children into slavery and sell them into slavery. Uh, Let's, you know, do you comply with that? It's all because you're Christians. And then the elders have an obligation to to protect uh, their people. And it's no different than uh, a family matter as well. So uh, as a father, um, if, you, if they come for me, that's fine. If they come for my children or for my wife, that's not so fine. I don't have, I don't have the freedom to sacrifice them. Okay, so and that's where this comes into play. You have the freedom to sacrifice yourself. You can absorb an insult. You can allow yourself to be arrested, persecuted, sued, whatever the case may be. Um, you may not sin against God, but you have the freedom to absorb uh, injustice, if you will. But if you're in a position of leadership or responsibility for others, you can't make them absorb it. You can absorb it for them, but you can't make them absorb it. So you can say, hey, take me, uh, don't hurt my children, don't hurt my wife, I'll take responsibility, just, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be the sacrifice there, I'll take the hit. But if they come for the people who are vulnerable or the people who are under your care, you can't just throw them under the bus, okay? That's just uh, one thing to keep in mind. And, and so the principle here is that Christians are free to accept any suffering individually. And some of the, some of the ancient Christian writers talked about this as well. One example is uh, the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas. He mentions in uh, question 96 that the Christian can yield his right, quote, uh, so you can you can yield your rights. You have rights, but if you wish to yield them in that moment, you are free to do so as long as you're not sinning against God. But Christians are obligated never to give to men or, or to Caesar what belongs to God. So there are some things that there is no flexibility allowed. And your neighbor and those under your care um, don't belong to Caesar. They belong to God. You can't just use them as a sacrifice. You can't throw them under the bus. So you need to protect and resist on behalf of others. And this is the the doctrine of lesser magistrates. 
um, or basically sacrificing oneself for one's friend. As Jesus says, uh, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So there's an idea here where um, for those of us who are in positions where we can, we sacrifice on behalf of others, that is an honorable thing. We lay down our lives for our friends, for our family as well, for our children, for our, for our spouses. So um, this is where the concept of resistance comes into play. And when we look at biblical responses to wicked laws, we have, first of all, can we, do we have the flexibility to submit as individual Christians without sinning against God? Okay, maybe we do that. Do we have the obligation to resist or to say no? Because either the law or the command is going to cause us to sin against God or because we are essentially going to throw others under the bus by complying with this command. And if we're talking about that second category where we cannot comply, the question is, now what? How do we resist against that? How do we still have a submissive heart but say, no, I can't, I can't do this? Uh, the first step, and this is, uh, we see this in many, you can, you can read about this um, in Calvin's Institutes or, or Luther's writings or even uh, St. Augustine or Aquinas. There's, it's, it's all throughout uh, the Christian tradition. The, basically, the first step in resistance is petition. Uh, but petition while while you're disobeying. There can be petition while you wait for an answer, you comply. Okay, but there's also petition while you disobey, while you refuse to comply. Um, and a good example of this that I found to be quite interesting is found in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. And in this chapter 4, we have the rebuilding of the temple. And what ends up happening, and I don't want to go through all of it, it basically it covers three chapters, Ezra 4 through 6, is Israel begins to rebuild the temple, and the adversaries, uh, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil, they are not a big fan of Israel rebuilding the temple. So they write a letter to the king of Persia saying that the Israelites are going to rebel, um, this is horrible what they're doing. These rebellious people are rebuilding Jerusalem. They're going to stop paying taxes. They're going to uh, resist you. They're, they're going to be wicked. Um, you, need to, you need to stop them. So essentially slandering. They write a letter of slander against, against Israel to the king of Persia. And the king orders, okay, he, he gets his letter, and obviously the, the, alarm, the alarm bells are going off, and he orders okay, stop that building. Tell them to stop building the temple um, in Jerusalem, and it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen. And it says in at the end of Ezra chapter 4 that the work on the house of God stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius. So the first king was Artaxerxes. He said, stop building, and then now they're waiting till the next king comes. But what's interesting is that they don't ask permission right away. So the next king comes, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah order and agree with, continue, let's build it again. Let's keep building the house of God. Let's keep building up Jerusalem. So they begin building, and the governor of the province finds out about it and says, hey, wait a minute, who gave you permission to build this house and finish the structure? That's Ezra chapter 5, verse 3. And so he is concerned 
hey, they weren't supposed to build this. Artaxerxes said no. So I'm going to go report this to the king. So he goes to the king, but Israel sends a letter to the king, to King Darius. And in that letter, they explain that actually, historically, Cyrus, the Persian king before um, Artaxerxes, actually had given them permission to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. So they make an appeal to precedent, uh, to to judicial precedent, that they are not sinning or breaking the law in what they're doing. So they went ahead to build without permission from King Darius, and then they petitioned the king and said, hey, please check the archives because King Cyrus actually gave us permission to do it. And then when he does find out in the archives, he sends another decree, basically reiterating what uh, Cyrus had, had said and approving the rebuilding of the temple. So what we see though there is that, you know, sometimes you wait for the magistrate to, to get permission. You know, you submit your petition, you wait, you don't take any action until you get something resolved. But sometimes you do the right thing, you do what you're supposed to do, whether or not the magistrate approves it and you're waiting. You're still, you're still submitting a petition to the magistrate. You're hoping and praying that they will uh, see your position and agree with you and allow it, but you're continuing the work anyways. Um, and some, some could argue that you know the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were wrong. Um, I don't think that you can argue that biblically, but I can imagine an unbeliever at that time saying, you guys have no permission to build the temple. Artaxerxes had said no, so you need to ask first before you start rebuilding it. And they basically say, we're going to rebuild it. We have history on our side. We have judicial precedent on our side. It's, it's going to work out for us in the end, but we're going to build it while we're waiting. Okay, so there's, there's that. There's the concept of, of petition. But then there's the concept of flight, of running away. Um, if your petition doesn't work and they continue to press the issue against you, Matthew chapter 10 talks about when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And that is in the context of persecution, but it certainly can be applied in other areas uh, there. Um, providing for one's family is perfectly acceptable. I mean, quite simply, if things get bad and oppressive uh, and tyrannical, people have the the freedom or the option of fleeing, and they should try to take that option. Uh, Jesus made that clear in, in the terms of persecution. If they persecute you, get out of there. Go somewhere else. Okay, don't... You can offer petition, but also you can flee. You need to get out of there. So that is the second option, run away. But then the last option is fighting. Uh, and this is more of an issue of self-defense. You know, you you petitioned, you tried to flee, but, you know, either there's no way out, uh, <laughs> there's walls, there's bars, there's gates, there's barbed wire, there's men with guns, you can't get out, and they're coming for you. And you've tried as much as possible to appeal for help. Um, and at this point, I do think there's an option for fighting, an option for self-defense. But again, I would, I would still say you are free to sacrifice yourself, okay? But you're never free to sacrifice others. Uh, so again, if they come for my family, I will defend my wife and children. I'm not going to just throw my children 
to the wolves to save my own skin. I'll sacrifice myself, my person, my freedom to protect theirs. And if that means I fight for them, and if I lose my life to save them and protect them, I will. And that's where the self-defense comes into play. And when it comes to lesser magistrates, so we're talking about mayors, uh, governors, senators, congressmen, um, the in-between magistrates over a tyrannical ruler, that becomes a very difficult thing to navigate. And it can lead to inter- it can lead to national conflict or civil war. So for example, if you are part of a state or a community, um, it's not so easy for the whole nation or the whole community to just pack up and leave. Maybe they, maybe they can't, maybe, maybe there's nowhere to go. And in that case, if you are the governor or if you are the mayor and your people are asking you for protection and for help against a wicked law from the emperor or from the president or whatever, what do you do? You're free to sacrifice yourself, but throwing them under the bus is not an option. You've petitioned, they've petitioned, there's, and they can't flee though. Some of them are trying to leave, but they can't all just get up and, and pack up their bags and go. So the question is, do you, as the governor, do you take up arms in self-defense against a wicked ruler or a tyrant? And I would say, I would say yes, you have an obligation to protect those under your care. And that's where... You have the idea of fathers defending their homes, governors defending their states. Uh, they're protecting each other, uh, and that's a very appropriate thing to do. So uh, you can read about this concept, and there's so many different books out there uh, if you want to learn more about this topic. Um, you can look at Calvin's works, Luther's works. You can look at, again, Augustine or Aquinas. Uh, but a very recent work that I found particularly helpful and very uh, a very good summary. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty small book. It's called Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates, and it's written by Pastor Matthew Truhella, T-R-E-W-H-E-L-L-A, and you can find that book on Amazon.com. I was very, I was very much blessed by that book. It's very useful, very helpful, and it goes through uh, biblical and uh, uh, historical writings that talk about um, the lesser magistrates standing up for what they believe is right. And there's some great stories, even from um, non-Christians, applying this example. So anyways, with that, I hope that was uh, useful to you, a blessing to you. Uh, Covered a lot of topics today, so we'll see you again next time. And until then, take care.